0: Well, it's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word this morning to Titus chapter 1. This is our first sermon out of Ephesians in a while, so much so that I wrote ac- accidentally Ephesians 1, 1-4 on my text here. Titus chapter 1, verses 1-4 through this morning. I'm going to look at three sermons in Titus as we set our minds upon glorying and the wonder. Of the birth of Christ. I would invite you to stand in reverence of the reading of God's perfect and precious word and do so knowing that in the scripture and in the scripture alone we know the true story of the world. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. O oh Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before You today to magnify Your holy name. We come before You today, Lord, that You may teach us and change us. Their lives might be more faithfully rooted in truth. That we might be a people who are more faithful to walk out that truth in godliness. And, O oh Lord, a people who say, now and forever, You are our hope. O oh Lord, eternal life is found only in You. And, Lord, make us a people who understand. That what we set this side a time to think upon is far more than sentimentality. It's the brute reality that God indeed became man. Fully God and fully man. That you might redeem sinners like us. Oh Lord, help us to see it. Help us to understand it. Help us to feel it. Help us to be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther is one from whom we get many of our Christmas traditions. Things like a lighted Christmas tree. So if he would be hanging candles on Christmas tree, which sounds pretty dangerous to me. But that was the practice, and we still do that, many of us, today. Martin Luther said in a Christmas sermon one time, these words, Look at the child and forget all other thoughts. That all that is and has been and ever shall be belongs to him. That your conscience should not fear, but take comfort in the child. This truth, this doctrine of the incarnation, the enfleshing of God, God coming down and taking on human flesh, fully God and fully man. This truth, Luther says, changes our behavior. This truth, this doctrine, this reality, changes the way we see things and what we do. Now Luther, in contending that, is following the Apostle Paul. And particularly in Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was Paul's uh, true child in the common faith, it tells us in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He was a Gentile Christian. He was Paul's trusted co-worker. We read about his work with Paul in Galatians 2 and 2 Corinthians 8. And he had been with Paul in some very difficult situations. But but I can picture the assignment that Paul gives Titus here in this way. I picture it like this. Paul calls Titus over and he says, I've got good news And I've got bad news. The good news is this. I want you to go and lead a church and churches connected with it. And I want you, he tells him in Titus chapter one, verse five, to put what remained in order. Those churches need to be, needed to be rightly ordered. He says, Titus, I believe that you are the man for that task. Well, here's the bad news, Titus. That's going to happen in Crete. That's where I want you to go, Crete. Now, now you may say, well, what's so bad about that? Well, look at Titus chapter 1, verse 12, and the first part of verse 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now that's Paul quoting a Cretan about Cretans. But then Paul adds his own commentary in the first part of verse 13. This testimony is true. So Titus, here's the good news. I want you to set in order this church and the church is connected to us, but it's going to be in Crete. It's going to be in the midst of those who say about themselves, they are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. And that testimony, Titus, is true. This is going to be a hard work, a difficult ministry. He goes on to say in Titus chapter 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus is being sent to one of the truly hard places. Crete is a a large island off the coast of Greece a port city now now today it's a place that people visit and long to go there but but at this time it was so notorious that the the phrase Cretizo to, the phrase to be a Cretan came to mean to be a liar to say that one was a Cretan was to say that one was a liar. It became a popular term for that, term for that. They were known for greed, treachery, violence, and sexual immorality. This is where t- Titus is to go. And in three chapters here, only 46 verses, Paul charges him in chapter one. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to create gospel order in the churches. I want you to order them faithfully and rightly, and he gives them some instructions on how to do that. In chapter 2, he says, I want you to to create gospel order in relationships, that these Christians would know how to relate not only to one another, but to others. And in chapter 3, he extends that out to gospel order as Christians relate to others in the world. Create this gospel order among a people that are confused, among a people who have all kinds of problems, among a people with whom, of whom false teaching has sprung up, among a people who have so many goofy notions about God that it's going to be very difficult work. But it's very interesting. In each one of the chapters, there is a particular doctrine, a particular truth that he points to that he wants to encourage Titus as he does this work. And that particular doctrine is the incarnation of Christ. The birth of Christ. The appearing of Christ. Oh, Titus, if you get weary about what you're doing in the churches, remember, he appeared. If you get weary about calling people to live rightly among one another, he appeared, if you get weary in a world full of so much chaos and, and, and calling people to live rightly in relation to the Lord, He appeared, that's what He keeps saying, He keeps grounding all of this. Look with me at Titus chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested, or the word can also be translated appeared. Titus 2:11 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared he saved us. In each one of these chapters he wants them to think about Titus to think about and others who this is read to to think about this reality that he appeared. Now here's my guess. My guess is that most of us do not think that what we celebrate at Christmas is as vital and transformative as the Apostle Paul does. In fact, in a lot of our circles, we, we sort of so sentimentalize Christmas that, that we fail to feel the, the brute force of gospel goodness of what is Actually happened when God became man. And there's another sense in which we tend to treat the incarnation, the infleshing of God in this way like, like it's just preliminary so we can get to the good stuff, crucifixion and resurrection. The Bible doesn't do that at all. It's one sequence of an event that is glorious. But understand this: there is no crucifixion that means anything. And there is no resurrection if God did not become man. You see, Paul understands that setting your mind upon this truth and really understanding it, taking it within your heart and mind, changes you. It transforms you in powerful ways, in ways that we need to be Reminded of in ways that allow us to look at our lives in the flesh and understand that they are full of meaning and purpose. First of all, I want us to see in the first two verses of Titus, the theme. This is the theme of the whole letter, and it's this. Truth transforms. Look with me at verse 1. First of all, he points to his call, his his authority by which he comes. And, and he clarifies, it is, it is not from me. I have a derived authority for the one who has called me and put me in position. He says, Paul, a servant of God, or literally a bond servant, or sometimes translated slave. Paul, a, a bond servant of God, a, a slave of God. Now, Paul follows the normal custom of letters of his day where you, you delineate the writer, the reader, and you give a greeting. But Paul always fills that sort of structure full of theological truth. And here he wants to clarify his role. And of all the things that Paul could say, this accomplished man who, who trained at the, the feet of the greatest rabbi, who, who had uh, 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 Roman citizenship, even though he was Jewish, all of these things he could say, what he chooses to emphasize here is that he is a servant of God. He's a willing servant of God no matter what. So that's what all this is about, Titus. The call is for Titus to, to be the same, a servant of God. And then he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The way he fulfilled his calling as a bond servant of God was as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The, the twelve plus Paul here. Those who by God's grace were the, the foundation stones of the church along with the prophets in Christ was the cornerstone. Those who by God's grace were gospel messengers delivering inspired truth that came from the very Holy Spirit of God. Yes, he had apostolic authority by the grace of God. And thus he gave his life as a servant of God. But then he explains the purpose of this calling. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. God's chosen. Now, all kinds of people get shivers when you start talking about elect or chosen. But brothers and sisters, hear me today. This isn't just here. This is throughout the Bible. To say that, that, that God is sovereign is to say that God is in Control and God is in control of all things. There's not a molecule that bounces around the universe outside of the sovereign control of God. And God is sovereign in salvation as well. Jesus said, Many are called, few are chosen, Matthew twenty two fourteen. 14. Jesus said, John 6 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. Peter calls Christians in 1 Peter 1 1, elect exiles. Israel, uh, we, we, which pointed forward, uh, were the chosen people of God. And we read in Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. through 8, The Lord has chosen you. Not because you are more in number. Not because of anything within you. Here's why He's chosen you. Because the Lord loves you. The Lord has chosen you because of the desire within Him to do so. God is the source initiator, implementer, and guarantor of salvation, and if not, there is no salvation. But that's in the Bible not to argue about. That's in the Bible to rest in. You know what I know about myself? I can mess anything up. This morning I'm frantically wondering where my brown belt is at the house. Like, I always think it here. Who has done something with it? What is going on? And Judy says, You're wearing it. <laughs> now, I don't just mess up little things like that, I can mess up anything. And it's a good thing that my salvation does not rest on me, but rather what God has done for me in Christ. That is my only hope now and forever. That provides comfort, security, thankfulness. And you know what else it does? It crushes pride. It is not 99% God and 1% me. It is totally what God has done for me. So he says this apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, and the word truth here is not logos like it is in John, and it's a word for, for the knowledge of the, the message, the gospel truth would be a good way to translate this here, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. You see, there's a pattern there he's pointing to. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, this knowledge of, the, of gospel truth, not intellectual assent. The, the word for knowledge here, the, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And here the word is epinosis. And the idea here is, is true knowledge. Not superficial knowledge. Not intellectual assent. Not head-shaking knowledge. But knowledge that has been taken within you to heart. So, so he is there for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of gospel truth. And guess what? That leads to which accords with godliness. That's the point he's making. Belief changes behavior. Truth transforms. Not truth abstracted from you, but truth embraced within your heart and mind and soul. It changes who you are. It accords with godliness. And one who has faith by God's grace, grows in knowledge of that God in His grace, Therefore, growing in godliness is 1, verse 2, the first part, in hope of eternal life. That produces hope. The degree that you push aside godliness, you don't care about the knowledge of God, you walk by sight and not by faith, your hope shrinks. To the degree that you walk by faith, by God's grace, you're given over to knowledge of Him, true knowledge that you're taking within you, and you're walking in accordance with that truth in godliness, then hope grows. Hope of eternal life. Eternal, the, the, the quantity, the, the forever hope. And life, the quality of it, it only comes with Christ in you. This is the theme of the letter. Truth transforms. Titus is to remember that as he rightly orders the Christian churches there, Christian relationships there, and Christians' relationship with the world. Truth transforms. He tells him later, preach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the truth. And there is a foundational truth that he points to again and again. And we see that in the second part of verse 2 and first part of verse 3. The truth, He appeared. Look with me at the second part of verse 2 Titus 1 which god who never lies promised before the ages began or, or most literally translated promised before times eternal the god who never lies a, a self evident truth hebrews 6:18 it is impossible for god to lie it says Now this is in total contrast to Satan who is called the father of lies in John 8.44. The God who never lies. He promised something before time eternal, before the ages began. Now, this is certainly contrasting the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture from the grand enemy, the evil one. But there's also more going on here than that. You see, the, the Cretans, of whom were known for their lying, a part of that was because they had assimilated the thoughts about the gods that were all around them. And, and one in particular, the sort of primary one, Zeus, Zeus. They believed that Zeus was born on Crete. Their understanding was that men become gods. Paul tells Titus, you root everything you say to them that their hope is bound up in the fact that God became man. But they believed man would become gods and Zeus was the the central god in their thinking. And Zeus was was famous because he was crafty. He was known to do whatever it took to get his way. He was known to lie. He was known for sexual immorality. The idea that Zeus up in the heavens would would cause it to be cloudy around because he would seduce others. He would even take the form of a husband to, to, to seduce a woman. And and he was revered because he was so crafty, he could always get what he wanted. He could always accomplish what he wanted. Now, before you think, oh, well, that's I mean, trusting and lying and deceit, well, brothers and sisters, I, I can't tell you how many people today are like, oh, we don't need a good person in office. We need an old Roughhousing kind of Son of a gun who will just do whatever it takes. We're still like that. So their idea was, look. And so they lived it out themselves. It, it was the power that they looked to. This God, look how He can get whatever He wants in His power. And they, they are to, to be told by Titus, the good news that the God of the Scripture is nothing like Zeus or any of the other so-called gods. No, this is not the man who became God and took his baggage up to the heavens. This is the God who became man. And though he was man, he was also fully God, and he was without sin. And his chief characteristics are faithfulness and truth. This is the one you look to. No, you don't try to emulate the craftiness. Zeus sounds a lot like the evil one himself. You don't emulate the craftiness to use your power to try to get what you want and appease yourself. No, you look to the God who has come down for you. Who has come not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. Oh, this promise is not an afterthought in history. This problem, this promise was before times eternal. This promise is rooted in eternity past. And then look with me in the first part of verse 3. And at the proper time, oh, before the world began, time's eternal, but now in history, there's a particular moment that's described as the proper time. And at the proper time, manifested in His Word, His Gospel Word, manifested, the Word can be translated uh, to make visible, to make known to be brought to light, or appeared. You see, the language here in the proper time is a lot like Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Great English Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the great clock of the universe keeps perfect time." At the proper time, He appeared. According to the, 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 the truth of God's Word, the, the Gospel Word that had been unfolded, there is the promise of God. He is manifested. He is here. There is the light of the world. There is the One who has appeared. You see, the coming of Christ in history... In the incarnation, in the infleshing of the very Son of God, is the fulfillment of God's promise to eternal life. I love the way New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie, Guthrie explains it. Linked with this eternal view of God's purposes is the appointed time of the bringing of His Word to light. That is, at the incarnation. The words here are reminiscent of the opening of John's Gospel. Or consider the words of Martin Luther. God manifested this faith and godliness at the proper time. That is, at the time of the coming of Christ, who was sent to manifest His Word. He appeared. The fulfillment of the promise. The very first gospel promise that a seed will be born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That line that's preserved through all the ages and there he is. A baby. With ears and eyes and eyebrows and toes and toenails. He appeared. The promise from the very beginning the one that all the Scripture pointed to, He appeared. We don't think enough about what it means to say He appeared. Romans 8.3 says, In the likeness of sinful flesh. Beautiful way to put it. He was not a sinner. He had no sin. But He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came among us. He really was a man. He appeared it tells us in mark ten forty five not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you 've already heard galatians four four through five he appeared born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He appeared hebrews two fourteen since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He appeared, it tells us in 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. He appeared. This is the key to redemptive history. This is the key to the unfolding story of the Bible. He appeared, the promises are true. He appeared. Look and see the truth that transforms. The gospel story is only true because God the Son came and He appeared and He was born and He was a baby. In a manger, who was God in flesh, He appeared. Do you know what it means to say that? We, we, we try so many ways to make ourselves feel better, to, to get over things, and, and so often, what we use is It's so superficial. But brothers and sisters, if he appeared, there's nothing you can't face. If he appeared, eternity is sure. If he appeared, all the promises are true. If he appeared, he will do all that he said. If God took on human flesh, and if God was a baby in a manger, if this happened according to the promise of God, everything is different. But finally, I want you to see the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Through the preaching, Are the proclamation with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He was manifested in His Word, in His gospel word. And then He says here, through the preaching which I've been entrusted, this this gift that I've been given to proclaim, not something that I've come up with, not something that I've invented. But what I am declaring is news. And that news is the news that He appeared according to the promise of the Gospel Word that we have been given. And I am to declare that through preaching, proclamation. The promised Gospel Word was made visible in the birth of Christ. But that Gospel truth is continuing to meet be made visible in the proclamation of the gospel. Do you understand that? You see, we minimize preaching to our own detriment. We minimize preaching to the sabotage of our own hope. We minimize preaching to the destruction of our own godliness. All kinds of thoughts today... Many things are all more important than preaching. Don't you believe it? He says through preaching here, that that there are eyes being opened and and there is one who does not believe And, and through the proclamation of the gospel, not just the words of the one who proclaims it, but because to the degree that we are faithful to the words we have been given, we are calling people not to hear us, but to hear Christ. To respond to His voice. Why would they respond to our voice? But Paul says it's true in 1 Thessalonians. He says, we rejoice that you heard us. Not as our word, but as God's word, which it truly is. Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear Christ, it says, without a preacher? You see, God has ordained preaching, and God has ordained preaching to have such a role in the unfolding of truth that eyes are opened to a degree that we can say, oh, there is one who did not believe, but now they believe, and look, they see love made visible and truth made visible, and now they understand what it means to say, He appeared. This activity is going on by the command of God, our Savior. You see, faithful preaching is not identifying with people and talking about God. Faithful preaching is declaring the words of God in such a way that people hear and respond to God. Now here he's talking to Titus and his formal role as a leader among the church here and the extended churches. But, but it's true of all of us who have the responsibility to proclaim the gospel there are those who proclaim the gospel in a in a formal role in a bible fellowship group or or some other group like that and, and 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 to the degree you're faithful to the words of god you're calling people to respond to god to hear the voice of christ through your words in the most informal sense when when you meet someone and you or sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to them, you aren't calling them to respond to you to the degree that you're faithful to what the Bible says. You are the instrument among them of the voice of Christ. And if they understand that He appeared, that these promises are true, they are not responding to your voice. They're responding to Christ. God has ordained this to be so, that people's eyes are opened That they understand the truth, that they are transformed by the proclamation of the Word of God. God spoke the worlds into existence. There was a competing voice in the garden. And what did God do? God raised up voices to declare the truth in contrast to the lies. And He did it all the way through the Bible. Through the prophets and then ultimately the apostles. And he's called his people to be this dividing line. And we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And the wonder and glory and power of that role. There is somebody this very moment. Who sees nothing but decoration in a manger scene. Who by God's sovereign grace, if you will speak the words of God to them, they very well may hear Christ and they very well may end this Christmas season with a sense of wonder and glory that He appeared. He appeared. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. The faith we all share as well. Jew and Gentile. Rich and poor. Educated and uneducated. The common faith. This message that we have that has been entrusted to us. And then notice the key words. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This common faith comes to us by grace. It brings peace with God and peace with men. It comes to us from God the Father and Christ Jesus who is our Savior. You know, I don't know about you, but um, a lot of times I'm, I'm pretty busy. And actually for me, in this sort of December period, I'm a little slower. Things are a little more quiet and I'm not nearly as busy. And I've grown in my life to long for that slowing down. And God uses it in my life in powerful ways you know a lot of the extended celebration of christmas is is misguided but at the very heart of it all we're doing is setting aside a time to think upon one of the most important truths in the history of the world and you know one of the things we do in my home is we have a little nativity calendar we read through the story. And each day we add a little bit to it and we do it every year. And so my children mouth the words as I read it to them because they know the whole thing by heart because they do it year after year after year. And doing that has a transformative power in my own life. I think about I cannot help but to think about what it is we are reading and why we are reading it. And what does it mean to say God became man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I love little quieter time that reorients me, recharges me, as I think about the fact that he appeared. By the way, we could not come to him unless he came to us. Do you understand the magnitude of what Christianity is communicating? There's no ladder that we climb to God. God came to us. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life that we could have never lived. He gave his life for us. He was crucified, not for his own sins, for he had none. And he was resurrected. But we could not have come to him unless he came to us. And in his appearing, truth and love are made visible. And our life in the flesh, we must understand it matters. Because he took on flesh for us. We're not just gritting our teeth and waiting to the good stuff one day and a new heaven and a new earth. No. This life matters. Matters here and now. We want his joy. We want the hope to to come out of us. He appeared. No matter what happens, if you say to yourself with with a sense of understanding, and you actually believe that God took on human flesh for us, oh, in the face of the difficulty, yes, but He appeared. He appeared. Be transformed by that truth. Understand that because of that truth, the promises are yes, and proclaim that truth to yourself and to others. Oh, what an open door this time is. As you walk around and there's manger scenes everywhere and there's all kinds of these. What an open door it is for you to say, you do know He appeared. Tell the story. This truth transforms. And we're not doing anything new. I was reading a Christmas sermon by John Chrysostom, who was known as the golden tongue preacher, and it's a sermon that he preached in 386. Pretty good ways ago. 386, here's what he says Since, therefore, all rejoice at the nativity, I too desire to rejoice. I too wish to share the choral dance, to celebrate the festival. But I take my part, not plucking the harp not shaking the Thessalian staff, not with the music of the pipes, nor holding a torch, but holding in my arms the cradle of Christ. For this is all my hope. This is my life. This is my salvation. This is my pipe. This is my harp. And bearing it I come and having from its power received the gift of speech, I too with the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and with the shepherds, and on earth peace to men of good will. Brothers and sisters, He appeared. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. I thank You, Lord, for the way You teach us that Your work was before the foundation of the world. That Your work extends into eternity future and that Your work is summed up and bound up in Christ. And oh Lord, when He appeared, people came. When he appeared, heaven rejoiced. And Lord, I thank you for the way you own the preach word to open eyes. To make truth and love visible. To see that the one who was in the manger is God in flesh. The one whom is the yes and amen to every promise. Oh, Lord, help us to see it and help us to say it to ourselves and to all around us. Help us to enjoy this time of year. But Lord, help us to do so knowing that all of our hope is bound up in that glorious truth that He appeared. We pray these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.